This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books and Latin American Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Ethan Besser-Frederick, a host of the channel, and today we'll be talking to Allison B. Wolf about her new book, Just Immigration in the Americas, A Feminist Account. Allison, welcome to the show. Thanks, Ethan. I'm excited to be here. Uh, full disclosure, I have to say, uh, Professor Wolf here was uh, one of my professors in undergraduate, so I'm very excited to be talking to her. Um, I was wondering, first of all, um, this was written... I'm curious if this project began when I was an undergraduate there. How did you come to write this book and, and a, a little bit of your own intellectual biography as well? Uh, well, first, Ethan, there's there's no greater pleasure for a professor see, than seeing their students succeed. And so I, I'm really, really excited and thrilled that um, that I have really the honor of being interviewed by one of my former students who is is doing great stuff himself. So thank you so much for that. Um as far as the book is concerned, it, it's actually kind of a, a simple yet yet long drawn out uh, start and stops. I grew up in Los Angeles in the 1990s where anti-immigrant sentiment was rampant. And, um, and so I always, you know, from a pretty young age, I was curious about what were the, what were the roots of those sentiments. And, and as a, a teenager, I, I can certainly recognize that I was sucked into some of those sentiments, um, much to my chagrin, but that, but that I never lost my curiosity about it. And I read a book around that time by an author, T.C. Boyle, called The Tortilla Curtain, which is a wonderful book. And it, it took, it's about an immigrant couple and a kind of couple who fancies themselves white progressives in today's language. And, and it took place a half hour from where I grew up. And it completely changed my mind. It completely humanized undocumented immigrants for me. Um, but for whatever reason, I just never, I never thought of, of doing any work with it. I was going to be a doctor and I went to Brandeis University to become a doctor where I ended up becoming a philosophy major and changing all of my mind. And then I went to graduate school with the intention of, of doing um, healthcare ethics and maybe some political philosophy. But in that time, I was offered an assistantship in Costa Rica in 2002, and I didn't want to go. I was scared to death of going to Central America. I had never uh, really done such a thing before. I barely knew Spanish, but I thought I will never, ever, like, I'll never live this down if I turn this opportunity down. So I went in 2002 to Costa Rica, learned Spanish, fell in love with the country, fell in love with the language, and um, just started diving into 
to the history actually between the US and Central America and Central American history in general. And I wrote an article at that time on global justice and what the US owed to Costa Rica based on some actions in the Contra War. And, and I was much uh, like many graduate students though, far along in my doctoral thesis on healthcare justice at the time. And I just thought, I can't do this right now. And I, and I left it, I left it for a long time. And then in, in around 2014, when we had the unaccompanied minors uh, coming to the U.S. in large numbers, I was very, it caught my eye, it caught my attention. And, and more importantly, the discourse caught my attention. Uh, and, and the lack of sympathy, frankly, that I heard uh, for these children <laughs> and, you know, how they were spoken of and referred to. And at that point, I just decided, no, I, I, need, to, I need to do something about immigration and, and I started reading like a good academic, all the philosophy of immigration I could and philosophy of immigration justice. And I saw nothing in there that was really based in, in feminist thought or even accounted for feminist insights. And I thought, I have, to, I have to do this. And the book was born. Well, I think that that leads into excellently into what I wanted to talk about for the very introduction of the book. Um, where you do contextualize the book in terms of the existing literature. And I was really surprised to hear, um, you know, I'm not a philosopher. I don't keep up with the literature. I was very surprised to hear the sort of state of the field that you give. That obviously there are some people doing good work, but that really philosophers haven't been engaging with immigration um, and some of the ways that we might expect them to. Um, so I'm curious if you could talk a little bit about what are some of the typical ways that philosophers have approached the topic of immigration and, and what were you hoping to add with this book? Yeah, thank you, uh, because I'm actually thinking a lot about that still. Um, luckily, the field is expanding. There are more people interested in philosophy of immigration. But the main debate within the philosophy of immigration literature still revolves around questions of borders, open borders versus closed borders. So uh, there's a wonderful uh, philosopher named Amy Reed Sandoval at, who teaches at uh, UNLV, and she characterizes it as the old classic open borders debate and the new open borders debate. And, and the classic, which I would say is the dominant structure, really is about, you know, does a state have a right to exclude immigrants from their territory? And if so, what can it do in service of that exclusion? And versus people who think that, no, there's no there's no justification for such exclusions. Immigrants have a right to migrate. Or uh, there's a new book, for example, from Alex Sager, who argues uh, based on immigration enforcement that that because of the way border laws have to be enforced, they they generate all sorts of harms and other forms of oppression and violence against migrants and and those who appear to be like migrants. You know. Um, but still, this question is really about open borders, open borders, open borders. And, you know, should we legalize, quote unquote, you know, I hate that term, um, uh, people? Should we regularize the status of folks? Should we make it easier for them to come and go? And that's, that really seems to stay the central question in the mainstream philosophical literature. And it, that's changing a bit, and, it's, and that makes me happy. Uh, but it still tends to be that way. The other thing I'd add, because it helps explain what, what makes this book different, is that the philosophers tend to talk in the abstract. We tend to talk about the obligations 
of Western liberal democracies toward immigrants, which immigrants, well, we can assume immigrants from the South, but, but uh, that's not ever stated. And, and because of that, it's very abstract and disconnected in my judgment, too disconnected from actual borders, from actual nations, from actual people and their experiences. So, so there's not a lot of engagement with really what's happening in real people's lives uh, to give us a broad picture of what, what we should be focusing on not as philosophers and as scholars of, of migration. So what I was hoping to do with this book was, was a few things. The first was bring feminism into the picture. Feminism has all sorts of interesting insights onto how to define justice. You know, and, and I'm sure we'll talk some more about it, but it's not a secret. Everyone who knows me knows I define justice as confront identifying and resisting oppression in domestic and global contexts. And I think that, that that vision of justice, rather than say a social contract vision of, you know, what does a government owe to its citizens and what do its citizens owe to its government, is more useful in, in a case of immigration. Um, and, and also, I, I think when you put a feminist voice as the centerpiece, what happens is you immediately go to concrete cases, to the lives of real people, and to the lives of people who are marginalized and oppressed and, and take their experience as the starting point, which is another thing I was hoping to do uh, in the book. And then the third thing is, is just to, have, to notice that immigration justice is about so much more than borders. And of course, borders and admissions policies are important, uh, but there are so many more things that are going on that I think are being ignored because we're not focusing enough as an academic community on questions beyond borders or abstract rights and things of that sort. So that's what I was hoping to do. Well, I, I certainly think you accomplished it. And, and I think your, your last comment there about the abstract nature of the work is something that I really want to comment here on. Um, I, I was anticipating because, because I know you and I, I know the sort of ways that you think about government questions. I was anticipating, uh, a more meditative dwelling on sort of contracts and states. And I was expecting to have to go back and like flip through some encyclopedia of Locke. And I have to say how remarkably jargon-free the book is um, and, and how absolutely readable and concrete it is, even as a person who hasn't picked up philosophy in a long time. So I would say to, to listeners, this is eminently a book in which the, the entire book or a chapter should be used in an undergraduate setting and would be totally legible. So my question is, you know, did was that an intentional choice that you sort of had to work at to write it in that tone or, or did it sort of, is that how you naturally write? Would you say? Um, I'd say a little from column A, a little from column B. Um, I, I confess that I think that I'm just mad, frankly, I'm mad. That, <laughs> I'm mad that, that philosophers are not engaged in or engaged with more in public policy debates on immigration um, and in general on public policy debates. I think philosophers have a lot to say and a lot to, to contribute. And I think part of why we're not engaged as much is precisely the issue you just referenced, right? That there is a perception, sometimes justified, sometimes less justified, that philosophers are talking really up high in the clouds, that we're we're referencing a whole body of literature and we're using particular frameworks that that might be interesting to us, but that are not relatable to other people. And I, I really wanted to write a book that would be readable to people. It makes me really 
to me, the highest compliment that is what you just said, that the book is clear and readable. That to me is the most important thing because I didn't write it just sort of for me to be in my own head. I wrote it because I really am hoping people read it and get ideas from it and that activists can read it, that academics can read it, that just normal, you know, people who are interested can read it and, and maybe find an issue that they didn't know about or find some, some way in to, to the discussion that wasn't clear before. So it was absolutely a, a decision that I made very early that I wanted this to be a book that, that had difficult issues that we could grapple with as scholars, but that was about um, fundamentally a, a book for that anyone interested in the topic would be able to read and hopefully enjoy and learn from. So thank you. Thank you for that. Um, yeah, I'll just leave it at that. So let's get into the, the contents of the book itself. Now that we've sort of set up the, the introduction and the framing, the book is split into two parts, which I roughly understood as the first part setting up some of the major analytical terms and concepts that you want to apply throughout, although it's certainly not free from empirical examples and, and anecdotes. And then the second part really looks at some concrete policies. So if we start with that first part, um, the first chapter covers Marilyn Fry's concept of the six faces of oppression and summarizes them like for people like me who aren't uh, super familiar with this terminology. And then you expand the work by identifying what you call the six faces of global oppression, a term which you differentiate from, from oppression on its own terms. So could you tell us a little bit about this addition you make here without necessarily going through all 12 <laughs> faces that yeah, appear? Yeah, there? of course. Yeah, of course. I won't torture you or your listeners. <laughs> I everything. But, uh, but you're right. Basically, uh, um, so I had the great privilege of being Marilyn Fry's student. And, and so I learned what oppression is all about from reading, from reading her work. And, and it's a landmark piece. God knows how many languages it's been translated into. Um, and, then, and then I've always found Iris Marion Young's account of five faces of oppression really useful to, as ways of kind of getting more concrete about how, how could we how could we identify or use this conceptual apparatus in daily life to actually identify problems that need resistance? And um, but what I found is that both of those both of those accounts, as well as others that I reference, you know, in in respect to one concept or another, they're all pretty much based in in a presumption that you're talking about a, things that happen within a society, right? So. Both Fry and Young talk a lot about social groups and members of social groups. And I think that's really helpful. But immigration is fundamentally a global issue. <laughs> it's fundamentally deals with um, people and nations and organizations that cross boundaries and that I don't think they're so easily pinned by some of the original ways of thinking about oppression. And so part of what I wanted to bring out in that first chapter is, okay, how could we take this basis that so many of us understand oppression to be about and expand it or apply it in a global context that it was frankly never really expected or, or created to apply toward? And so what I, what I thought about were, I tried to think concretely, okay, what are some concrete examples that, that 
I'm thinking of here? What would be an example of global oppression? And I, I mentioned earlier that my whole interest in, in this topic as, a, as an academic came from my trip to Costa Rica. And I, I often thought and would use terms like the United States, you know, oppresses Costa Rica. And I thought, what does that mean? How could I explain what I mean by that? Um, and I thought, well, I can explain it by something like, well, the U.S. has a foreign policy agenda, and only because of that policy agenda and the geographical location of Costa Rica in relation to that policy agenda is the United States doing certain things on an international stage in relation to that country. It's, it's not because of any particular policy or, 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 or actor in Costa Rica. It's just that it's literally located in this isthmus that the United States has a long history with and, and it sees as a strategic alliance. And so I was trying to, to think, okay, that's one sort of example. And that's the example that um, you know, we use, I use a lot in, in the sixth chapter on exporting US policy, right? And like how these nations are nations in relation to each other and, and what that means for policymaking and, and things like that. Um, but then I thought, well, that can't be the only thing, right? I mean, <laughs> it can't just be nations toward nations because when we talk about immigrants, we're talking about nationals, <laughs> right? Foreign nationals coming into another country. And, and so I wanted to also think through, okay, well, how is that all related, right? How does their nationality have, have a direct relationship to certain kinds of immigration policies and certain treatment they receive? And are they really receiving that treatment because of their actions or because they're members of a certain nation? And I think that when we look, especially in the United States context and in the Americas in general, uh, what we see is that whatever treatment, good or bad or neutral, uh, for lack of you know less you know generalized terms, <laughs> um, it's almost always going to be have a direct relationship to the nationality of the person. Um, so, for example, I I now live in Colombia in Bogota, Colombia. I work at Universidad de los Andes here, and I get treated a certain way as an immigrant. And there's just no question that part of the reason I get treated in those ways is because I'm an immigrant from the United States. And I'm here investigating Venezuelan immigration, primarily, though not exclusively, to Colombia. And it's very clear to me, and sometimes explicitly so in the policies, that this stuff applies only to people from Venezuela. <laughs> so, so basically, these are some concrete circumstances that I was trying to say how could we not talk about structures of oppression in this context just because we're talking about multiple nations or nation states or groups? And so what I basically was trying to do was expand Fry's argument of it's not just structural, it's particular kinds of international structures. It's not just that people are that 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 um, that groups and their members are put in double binds. It's that they're in those double binds because of their nationality or if you're talking about a nation, because of their geographical location or strategic location in, in relation to another nation. And that, and that um, those lead to certain groups and certain nations being harmed or benefiting in both domestic and global contexts. So that's what I was trying to, to expand. And I thought that, that the faces helped. Um, 
if, if, if I can, I just want to say there's one thing I added in that chapter, which is the derivatization phase. Cause that is, cause that is not part of the you know framework that I'm talking about. And I stole the concept blatantly from Anne Cahill. Um, and, and, uh, and the reason I, I'm not going to go into obviously all of derivatization, but, but it basically is this kind of form of metaphysical oppression as I see it, right? It doesn't acknowledge the existence, the, the independent existence of another entity apart from you or how you see that entity. And I also think I wanted to add that piece because I think that happens a lot in immigration. I think a lot of what's going on in immigration is about we, whoever we are, get it, conjure up an image of who a quote unquote immigrant is. And then we literally don't have the capacity to imagine their existence apart from that perception. Um, and, and I think that that's something important is, is learning how to not just politically or ethically, but, you know, as a matter of, and I apologize, this is super jargony, uh, the ontology, right? In recognizing that literally beings exist who are apart from us and they don't depend on, they don't, their, their existence does not depend on our perception of it or not. And I think that would help us a lot if we would be able to connect to people <laughs> in that way instead of through kind of abstract concepts sometimes. Well, as a person who just finished teaching a class on Central America and the Cold War, I immediately thought, dang, I wish I had the term derivatization to, to use throughout the semester because it's kind of the only way to make sense of what the U.S. is doing in Central America. Um, Absolutely. <laughs> and, and this chapter, again, uh, I, I think you bring up great examples to show how global oppression as an analytic is used. And uh, so the one I'm going to pull from is on page 31, where you mention why Guatemalan immigrants were preferred for some factory mm -hmm. jobs in the United States over Mexican immigrants. Yeah. So could you tell us a little bit about this example and why you think global oppression is a, is a fruitful way to view this as compared to some other lenses? Yeah. Um, so the case comes from a well-known case. It was published in the New Yorker on um, what happened at a, at a firm called Case Farms, and they're a poultry company. And and basically, it happened to to this migrant, this Guatemalan migrant named uh, Osia Lopez Perez. And and basically, you know, you start reading this story, and it's it's fairly typical in terms of immigration injustice that that in my judgment ought horrify us all, right? You know, the guy goes to work and and is seriously maimed and injured and and never had his documents and and all the terrible things that happen. But but what I what I thought was interesting was that the more we researched the history of both this company and how this young man, uh, really teenager, came to be in this circumstance, what we see is that. There's a long chain of, of historical precedent that connected this strange Mayan village, not strange, uh, it's strange in the sense that this is this connection because it's so random, um, that connects this Mayan village, right, to this plant, poultry plant in Ohio. And, and in fact, those particular workers were targeted on multiple levels uh, implicitly and explicitly in the sense that United, the United States government refused to grant temporary protective status because of the civil war in Guatemala at the time during the Cold War and uh, decided that uh, to designate Mayans as uh, resistors and not victims. So they weren't eligible for certain programs. 
uh, in the United States that others have been eligible for. It had to do with the search for cheap labor that seemed to be more favorable to start going farther south than Mexico. It had to do with the U.S. government deciding to get lax on regulations inside the country and outside the country of who could bring labor in. And, and what I thought was, you know, if we just look at this as yet another Central American migrant who was injured in, in exploitative working conditions, we only get part of the picture of what's wrong with that. I mean, obviously it's wrong to exploit and, and expose people to these sorts of injuries. But there's a whole other level to it, which is the injustice in this case, I think, is directly connected to various po- U.S. foreign policy initiatives and the relationship between U.S. private business, United States government, and Central American governments that, that illuminate entirely different aspects of the problem that I think we all need to be paying attention to in order to truly identify and resist immigration injustice. Because yes, we could fix certain working conditions, but if we don't pay any attention to these international connections that are bringing workers here and the the particular reasons of these villages versus those companies, then we're going to miss that part of immigration justice is gonna involve really re-examining certain patterns of history and certain regulations that don't appear to have anything to do with immigration and yet are, are at minimum um, kind of cultivating the ground for these sorts of acts to occur. And, and that's part of what I meant earlier, what I said, I'm hoping to not just get onto the ground level with real people and real borders, but also like realize, wow, immigration justice is a really big event. It's so much bigger than just this border policy or, this, or an admissions policy. It's, it's how do we talk in general about the relationships between states and the relationship between states and businesses and what and and these aren't even my questions necessarily about you know multinational corporations and things but it seems like if we want to really get at immigration injustice we're going to have to start seeing things in these more global contexts and how all these webs are weaved so that um otherwise we're just going to repeat the cycle and that's really what i'm trying to 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 indicate. Um, and there's something I imply, and I don't spend too much time with it in the book, but I believe it very strongly, which is that history matters. So many, anal- so many policy conversations, so many philosophical conversations, um, and but so many academic conversations kind of proceed with the idea that history is not a relevant factor, or that the only reason that history is relevant is to look backward and, and for retribution. And I think that's just totally wrongheaded. I think we cannot create forward-looking policies that will actually, and not just formal policies, informal actions to address immigration injustice if we don't understand all of the various historical factors that ha- and patterns and processes that have brought us here. And, um, and so I think that all of that is, it comes through in, in the example there of, of Lopez Perez. Well, I'm certainly a sympathetic audience to the importance of historical literacy when when making analysis of of uh, immigration in Latin America. Um, looking on to chapter two, you examine another dimension of global oppression by detailing what you call the six faces of epistemic oppression. Um, I found this chapter very interesting. Could you tell us a little bit about what is epistemic oppression and how is it distinct from the other sorts of oppression that we've talked about so far? 
Sure. Uh, so first of all, epistemic oppression is fundamentally about harms done to someone in their capacity as a knower, right? So, so things that happen to someone because of their social group membership, uh, because of their social location or national location that, for example, identifies someone as trustworthy or not trustworthy, that decides that this is a person who has authority, right? Um, you know, um, which people, for example, get invited onto these podcasts or which, you know, and which don't. Um, those are those are all related to the world of, of epistemic, of the epistemic. And uh, as a feminist philosopher, I am very interested and have been following the work uh, that began with Miranda Fricker, but but you know has expanded, uh, particularly the work of Christy Dotson and Gail Polhouse and Allison Bailey, in in really looking at how um, various injustices can occur around epistemology. So basically, various kinds of harms that are caused to people as knowers themselves. And what occurred to me when I was watching the news. And, and talking to different people and, and just going to feminist philosophy conferences that were really focused on, uh, you know, epistemic injustice and social epistemology is that these two areas of not just immigration justice, but, but political philosophy in general and, and social epistemology and feminist epistemology really are not talking to each other. And yet I think have a lot to say to each other and, and so it made me start thinking of, of this term epistemic oppression, which, which was coined by Christy Dotson. But, you know, as I talk about in the book, what I'm doing with it is a, is a bit different than what she was trying to do with it. Um, and I think what happens is it, it helps us see another aspect of immigration injustice that very few people are talking about, which are the ways that we talk about immigrants, the place or lack of place that we give immigrant communities in generating knowledge about the kinds of injustices they face, um, that the lack of authority that we give them when they're being interviewed, the fact that we don't, so many of us, you know, don't interview actual immigrants and yet we write about them. Um, that strikes me to me as a different kind of immigration injustice. And when I started to think about it, <laughs> I realized, wow, in the same way that global oppression has multiple faces, so too does epistemic oppression have multiple faces. So it can have the face of epistemic exploitation from Nora Bernstein on about you know, who's doing the labor and who's benefiting from the labor, right? And who, so, you know, who's out there talking to migrants and listening, and then who's, who's the one benefiting from all that? Um, but you also can talk about things like epistemic marginalization, where we just literally have excluded from the knowledge generating process the entire group of most immigrants who we all write about and care about. And so I was trying to think, well, what would those faces look like in a strictly epistemic context? And where do we find them? And, uh, and try to weave not just the political injustices and social injustices that I think most of us are familiar with if we, if we think about immigration, but also these epistemic injustices that are woven through all of these policies in terms of, you know, ability to name oneself and their status, the ability to, to report their experience and share their experience and be so vulnerable only to find out that some 
Borden's and cu- border and customs agent just says, no, I just don't find you credible. Why? Because you're labeled a refugee seeker. And I've decided that refugee seekers, you know, have an agenda. So I don't trust what they say. And I think that this is not just an injustice for all sorts of obvious reasons, but there's there are epistemic elements that I, I would like us to pay more attention to there that I also think we could learn from in terms of scholarship on immigration and how we could do a better job, myself absolutely included in that, how we can do a better job working with immigrants, not speaking for them. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. I think that that distinction is, is, is a great one, um, especially because so many classrooms that could use this book focus at least a little bit on methods throughout the semester, where you talk about how do we talk about Latin America, especially in a U.S. context for, for many of us teaching. So I think it's a great set of questions for any class to dwell on. Yeah. Um, the, the book moves on to part two, where we get into the, the real meat of it, where we look at specific policies. And chapter three begins with DACA, raids, and deportation. And you give a brief, brief history of immigration raids and then argue against, as I see it, categorically the use of the, any use of the concept of illegality to justify or inform policy decisions. So uh, could you talk a little bit about um, immigration raids and or their relationship to illegality as a, as a category of being? Yeah, I think that's a really good question. I, I don't think I've thought about it in exactly those terms before, even though I have a whole chapter on it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no, um, well, I think, okay, so so I want to recognize, for example, the work of um, Jose Mendoza, who is one of the first people who starts talking about immigration enforcement as as really needing to get onto our, our agendas. Um, and and if you think about it, if, if you have enforcement, what is enforcement for, at least state enforcement, right? State enforcement is, is, is under this kind of overall branch of, of who's, who's officially part of us and who's not, and, and basically making sure that, that we control those, those metaphorical and literal boundaries. And, and so what, I'm, what I want to think about in that chapter was but were a couple of things. One, the way the entire framework of legality versus illegality itself is oppressive, right? It's oppressive in multiple ways, and it's and it's reflective of a very particular kind of racist, racial, racist, colonial, colonialist framework. It's also very gendered in many ways. And I wanted to to do first to be reflective of that, right? That so when we talk about immigration justice as as fundamentally being about identifying and resisting oppression related to immigration policies and practices and so on. One of the places we have to start are, are these overall frameworks, our overall conceptual analysis. And one that we use all the time is this framework of legal and illegal. And I wanted to problematize that from the start. But but the raids, what I think the, that immigration raids and our strange 
I don't know, blasé acceptance of them or something, I think is reflective of how insidious this framework has become, how normalized it's become to talk about the fact that um, that a state has the power to deem someone legal or illegal and then bring consequences upon those people Regardless, but no one thinks about the methods used on on that. In in other words, I imagine all sorts of ways that we could enforce immigration that doesn't involve people being ripped out of their workplace and sometimes having their documents checked, sometimes not, because let's not forget that in many of these raids, many people end up having to be returned because they are actually citizens of the country. and many citizens are deported and, and are stuck in kind of this horrid limbo. None of that would be possible if we didn't have this, this acceptance of like, yes, there are legal and illegal people. And if you do not doing legal or illegal acts, right? There are legal or illegal people. Um, and, and okay, I guess if they're illegal, anything goes. So we can have these horrific raids that, uh, and I think I mentioned this in the book, that literally were constructed from the, uh, the second George W. from George W. Bush, precisely as an example of what not to do. He was trying to scare lawmakers and seeing that this would be the horrid, immoral way we'd be acting as a nation if you don't take legal action. And instead, what happened was it became part of this legal enforcement apparatus. And, and I think that if we challenged that more, we would start to see raids for what I think they are, which are uh, you know oppressive arms of the state enforcing unjust immigration policy in a way that is unjust. So, um, so part of that is I wanted to call us to attention that we we tend to focus on you know, you know, is DACA good or bad? You know, should we do this or not? Should we legalize the Dreamers or not? And that, but that leaves the framework completely untouched. You know, completely, uh, completely un unexamined. And I think that that is a, is a problem. And so I think that that is a, that is a, a really important thing. The other thing that come up in that chapter was something that I, I take from Carlos Alberto Sanchez, which is this idea that when we label someone illegal, we are, exclu- we are officially kind of not, not ex- we're kicking them out of the community of humans, right? If you think about it, there are other things, there are crimes that get committed and we have processes for those crimes, you know? And, and, and believe me, those processes are deeply problematic, but they exist, right? And the idea is that you have obligations to people as human, as human beings to, to recognize this was an act and so on. But when you're talking with, with immigration, this framework of legality, illegality is really about dehumanizing, fundamentally dehumanizing um, this group, and and but not dehumanizing them in the way that Sanchez talks about, but rather in this derivatized way of like, you're being reduced to whatever image I need you to be, and I cannot and will not see you in another way. So, so this framework of legal, illegal, I think is operating in multiple levels uh, not only to promote these kinds of racialized, colonialized ideas, but to normalize violence against human beings 
on the ground in, in a way that kind of is justified by the category illegal itself. So, um, so that's what I was trying to get at was trying to draw those connections between all these various things that might not seem connected, but, but I think are all fundamentally connected by this, by this insidious term of illegal versus legal. Well, I don't want to talk too much, or I don't want to say too many political things and get myself in trouble, but I couldn't help but I was reading this chapter as our country was going through the debate about whether or not the new shelters the Biden administration built for children was a substantial enough improvement to be worth celebrating. Uh, yeah. So I I thought about this chapter often that week. <laughs> I think you, yes, but it is... Um... I think, you know, not to wade into that particular debate, but 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 to call attention to something that's interesting, which is I started writing this book before Trump uh, became. <laughs> and then, of course, it, it gave me all sorts of fodder. Right. Um, but but one thing that I do hope people come away from from the book, it, I do try to mention it, is that this is a long history of the United States. This is not this is not a book. This really is, in that sense, a, a philosophy book. It's a political philosophy book, but it's not a politics book in that way, right? It's not the, these policy. The book's not about this policy or that per se. It's more. It's more of using policies to both comment on the policies, obviously, but also to shed light on on structures and institutions throughout the Americas that are that have been reflective of injustice toward immigrants. And if we don't have these kinds of structural discussions and structural changes, they will continue to to promote immigration injustice against whole swaths of migrants. Um, so yeah, I just thanks for the opening to clarify that like, no, actually this is this is a larger spectrum than just, you know, a certain era, even if that era is helpful to illustrate certain points. <laughs> Well, the next chapter is certainly about a specific moment, yeah. uh, which is the Trump administration. Yeah, I just thought about um, that. <laughs> well, it's a great transition. You're setting it up so easily for me. Um, it, chapter four, Cruelty Doesn't Capture It, I think was the most provocative one uh, to, to me as a reader. It really made me think about the terminology. I'm surprised you didn't try and submit this as a thought piece somewhere. Maybe I missed it. Um, but in here, you argue that the notorious family separation policy that the entire world got to see of the Trump administration um, is not best understood as an act of cruelty and instead should be understood on other terms. Could you talk to us a little bit about that? Sure. So first of all, um, full disclosure, part of it was I knew I wanted to talk about family separation, but I didn't know how. And and part of that is because for me, the thing is so egregiously unjust. That <laughs> I, didn't, I just didn't know. I didn't know how to say it. I didn't know what what to add to the debate. Um, but I was also obsessed with it because, as I said in the book, I, I see it as sanctioned kidnapping. I still can't get over the lack of intervention of other international parties uh, to to this action. Um, and it made me so mad. And so I, I was watching the news and reading anything I could find about it. And, and what I kept finding was everyone kept saying, this is such a cruel policy. This is so cruel. This is so cruel. And I kept thinking, I feel like that's getting off easy. And, and so it, it, made me, it made me reflect, well, what bothers me so much about this term? And, and what might we be able to learn from, well, what, what might we be able to learn about the nature of immigration justice in relation to this policy and, and in general? 
by examining that word, right? And why it came so easily to people and why I was so uncomfortable with it. <laughs> and, and so uh, not to give away the whole, the whole chapter, but, but the, the crux is basically that I think cruelty best applies toward individuals doing premeditated action to other individuals, um, not connected to systems and structures. I don't think it makes sense to talk about a system or a structure as being cruel because it, it implies a kind of intentionality that I don't think exists. But it also, I think, leaves us with a sense of despair, a sense of powerlessness, right? Well, well, this person is cruel and I guess they need help with that. Um, or, or God, the system's cruel, but what do you want? You know, institutions are cruel and they're cold. And, and I feel like that just, even though that's, that was definitely not the intention of any of these critics, right? These critics were raving mad and they wanted to change things. I, I became more and more concerned with, with the unintended implications of what other kinds of narratives could be inadvertently fed by describing the policy in this way, rather than what I think it is, which is oppressive. The, uh, the a policy is a product of oppression. It's about creating oppression. It's about furthering oppression in both global and domestic contexts. And I think when we can put it in that language, we can capture the systemic nature of it, which, which I think is more accurate, right? I don't think it's accurate to say that individuals are, every one of them were cruel. I think that there are, of course, cruel individuals, and I'll leave it to people to decide who those were. But if, for example, you read autobiographies that have been coming out recently or interviews with Border Patrol agents or former Border Patrol agents, you know, those are not people who... I'm not hearing these, you know, this is like every single individual applying these policies fits that bill. And I think it distracts us, distracts us from the work to sit there and think what we have to do is weed out the bad apples, the, the cruel ones and leave the good ones. No, that's not the problem. The problem is all of these axes of oppression that are working together, fomenting each other, um, creating new axes of oppression, creating new new systems. And when we put it there, now we're back in this realm that I think we should be with immigration justice of, okay, now we can identify what the problem is and now let's find out how to resist it in pieces or in as a whole to improve actual people's lives. And, um, and that's what I was hoping to do is kind of dislodge the, the, the analysis of what we should do in the face of this policy from kind of bringing it down to the level of individual morality, which I found to be uh, wanting. Um, well, I found it extremely compelling and I, and I recommend it as reading for, um, for many of us that felt horrified by what we were seeing on the border. Um, but this offers, I think a little, like you just explained, a more complicated view of, of the topic. Thanks. I, ha I have to say, it's actually one of my favorite chapters of the book. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why I felt very philosopher-esque writing it. I don't know. But maybe I, anytime you engage in an etymology, it feels false. Yeah, it, it, felt, it felt really fun in, in, you know, the sick, nerdy way that we get like, <laughs> tracing an actual idea. Yeah, I will say I enjoyed the entire book, but I had to put down the book after every chapter. I was kind of so outraged um, moment to moment. If it makes you um, better, so did I. <laughs> well, to, to continue on with that outrage, let's talk about the fifth chapter, exporting <laughs> U.S. immigration policy. Um, and, 
Yes, it, it outlines several policies the United States implements to enforce its immigration policy abroad and sometimes finds willing enforcers abroad. Um, could you outline, you know, some of these policies roughly? There's many that you talk about here, but could you outline um, some of these policies and how they function as examples of global oppression? Sure. So, so basically, this is where I, the book is called Justice Immigration in the Americas, and I feel like this is this is the chapter that finally begins the in the Americas part, of it, <laughs> right? Um, and, and this has struck me since that first trip to Costa Rica, frankly, on how how often when you start start looking at things happening in other countries, you can trace it back to something that some U.S. policy agenda. And so I started following a few of these, a few of these to get. Uh, so the remain in Mexico policy or migrant, you know, the um, that's the most that's the most central policy. Right. But th- this uh, chapter was also being written during those debates about uh, whether or not to suddenly impose tariffs on Mexico if they don't pay for a wall or if they don't do something to keep more people off the border. And it was also in these this context of debates about third party agreements, what they were calling these third these third safe haven, safe harbor agreements, where uh, El Salvador would allow um, someone from Guatemala to, de- to declare asylum there. And then Guatemalans would let people from El Salvador uh, request asylum there, and therefore they could not get to the United States to request asylum. Uh, and and what I was looking for there was less the the individual policies and more the pattern that they were demonstrating, um, which is this pattern of the broad global reach of the United States and the power that it that it holds. And some of that is is clear, obvious, you know concrete power in, in a classic sense of the word, right? Uh, and some of that is that is more of that subtle, discur- you know, subtle um, disciplinary power that Foucault talks about. And some of it is, I mean, there's just multiple levels of power going on. And I was trying to think, how come besides raw power, right? How come all these countries are engaged with the United States? And why does the United States, why is this the policy they're pursuing? Right. And I was really just trying to see where that came, how that fit into this larger project of of basis of global oppression. And I was like, well, okay, it's it's trying. Obviously, this is trying to solidify certain global positions of the United States, because if the TV coverage is not on the U.S.-Mexico border, then the United States looks better globally because your listeners might recall the U.S. at this time was getting a lot of bad international press because of reporting on the border and they wanted that to stop. Um, and, and the more I started thinking about it, the more I thought derivatization, this is this, the pattern, when you look at it as a pattern of, we don't like something, so now we need to get some other country to do our bidding. Um, that is classic derivatization. It's almost like, well, look, El Salvador, you want the United States to do this for us and this is what we think of you. And so you're gonna do it. Um, but it also fed derivatization of other things, right? So I talk about how it feeds Mexico then derivatizing Central American migrants so that they can get a decent relationship, in this case, with, with the United States. And you could see how Mexico could be derivatizing Guatemala as nations because now, now they're in this kind of power play with each other. And, and so that was one thing that I thought was going on. I also thought there's a lot of epistemic oppression going on in this circumstance, right? So these other countries are telling the United States 
this is our capacity or this is not our capacity. And the United States is just giving them no epistemic authority whatsoever to to make these claims. They will not hear them. They will not give them any heed. They won't even try to confirm them for themselves. Um, so there, there's this weird, there's this classic, actually colonial epistemic thing going on here that um, Charles Mills talks about in the racial contract of epistemically norming spaces and 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 the idea of like, well, you know, the Americas, those are not places that are trustworthy. Those are not places that create people who generate knowledge and we don't have to, you know, whereas in the United States, that is, that's the powerhouse of, of scholarship and understanding. And so this kind of long standing dynamic, I think was playing out also in this pattern of exporting U.S. policy. Um, the other thing that I was trying to implicitly push against has to do with what you asked me earlier about what kinds of things philosophers tend to talk about which is that when philosophers rarely talk about this, but when they do, they try to talk about it as a, as a metaphorical expansion of the border, right? So like the U S border is, but that to me makes, I think that really misses a lot of the, of the point here. This is not the U S border. This is, it's not that the United States government has jurisdiction all the way down, right? It's that, it's that these, these structures of global oppression and power that render certain countries vulnerable to other countries and benefit other countries by placing them in certain social positions mean that they can impose certain policy agendas. It's, and that to me is not, so, so to me that gets lost if we go back into like, but your border is here or it's there, or it's, is the border in Mexico is no, it's not about the border. It's about the policies and, and how they, they work together to create and recreate uh, webs of oppression that trap immigrants and, and other members of nation states, whether they're immigrants or not, in certain kinds of no-win situations. Well, I really appreciate that perspective shift. Really, to, as a reader, it felt like a perspective shift. We're saying, let's look at immigration uh, from the perspective of immigrants as they're moving, because for them, immigration doesn't begin on the U.S. border. Immigration begins as soon as they run into Chiapas and they come across this militarized border policy going on there. Yeah. And even before that, I mean, really right. now, now it's even before that with all these pressure points throughout Central American nations to, to control who's, lo- who's leaving and who's not and, and all sorts of other things. So I, I think I appreciate that. I think you're right. I absolutely was going for a perspective shift there. Um, and, and also just sort of to put a fine point on it, that I think that perspective shift now needs to go if we're talking literally about the book, go retroactive to those other chapters and then go forward. Because I don't think we can understand what goes on supposedly in the United States. It goes back to that Osceo Lopez case without having this larger perspective as a region and like what sorts of things are going on in the region. And many of them, and of course I use the United States there as a, because that made sense in the book, frankly, to use the United States to transition. But, but when we keep going you know, down, in Costa Rica and Colombia, we might see some U.S. influence, but but what we're seeing more is an influence of a of sort of accepted oppressive norms around immigration rather than necessarily a particular policy or not. So I think that that the more we can have a regional approach that starts with immigrants' lives, uh, that that'll actually give us a um, a broader perspective of what's going on even within the United States. 
Well, not coincidentally, the next chapter is about Costa Rica and immigrants there, uh, entitled Nicas Fuera. Um, this brought up a lot of memories to the trip to Costa Rica that, that you led that I was fortunate enough to be on. Um, could you tell us a little bit about Nicas Fuera and how immigration policy and attitudes towards immigrants um, play out in Costa Rica today? Yeah. So first of all, I have to give the disclosure. I give it in the book and I have to give it again because this chapter just just tore me up inside to write. <laughs> and and the reason for that is is because I for me Costa Rica is a wonderful magical country and as you alluded to, I've taken countless students there and and it's where I came to to learn about Latin America and came to care about Latin America and and so on. So this was hard for me to, to do, frankly, because what I was trying to do was take a, an approach that that wasn't based on my experience. And that's how I got inspired to write about it, which was, wow, my experience was so great. That's not at all the experience of the vast majority of Nicaraguans. And I was trying in this chapter to understand why, right, to try to balance how it is that, that I have this view of this country that is so positive and so warm and so welcoming, and yet acknowledge that there's a whole bunch of injustice committed against Nicaraguan immigrants there. But uh, so I'm trying to balance those two in the chapter. And that's the guiding question, actually, if the chapter is, how do I explain this, right? How do I explain how I'm treated? Uh, not obviously not as an immigrant, but I've spent very long swaths of time there. And I know immigrants from the from Europe and who are treated beautifully and wonderfully. And how do I explain all of that and yet see what is really happening to Nicaraguans in Costa Rica. And the first thing I realized is I have to, this is not in the book, but since we've had it as a thread in the conversation, I had to get away from borders discussions. And what I meant by that is that immediately what happens when you go to Costa Rica, and the same thing will happen when we continue our journey south to Colombia, for all intents and purposes, there are open borders in these places. And so the injustices committed against most Nicaraguans are not border involved or admissions policy injustices. They are they are injustices that come from, in my judgment, colonial legacies, racial legacies, the history between the two countries that is completely tied up in those racial and colonial legacies of Costa Rica wanting to define itself as a white nation. And Costa Rica, in fact, it used to be their, their tourism uh, sort of um, slogan was, you know, the Switzerland of Latin America. I mean, they very much still want to identify and do identify as white and as European and very much connected to the United States. And, and they, and to part of the way they've done that over time is to define themselves against and in contra Nicaraguans who they see as, you know, violent and brutal and brown and, and really what I was trying to, to do with this chapter was not only assess why this counts as immigration injustice, right? It wouldn't in the traditional literature. It would just count as stuff that sucked. Um, and I want to say, no, this is there. Like, yes, it sucks, but it's more than that. This is a structural, historical process that is producing and allowing for these kinds of incidents, you know, like, um, like calling someone a Nika is a derogatory term. Uh, akin to other derogatory terms that I will not use, but that you all can imagine uh, in the United States. And and who is that? And like, how did that term come to be? And and say, no, that that is also immigration injustice. It's not good enough just to say, well, you can come into the country 
and not think about how one is treated within the country. And that that's really the kind of big picture takeaway in terms of immigration justice and how I hope I think we should we should understand it, which is that immigration justice is is about what goes on in nations, between nations, not just at a policy level and not just at a formal level, but at an informal level, because many of this stuff is technically illegal in Costa Rica, but nothing happens to people who do it. <laughs> right. And 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 even if even if you know, there's not like a day-to-day enduring of xenophobic violence or xen- or systemic violence. There is a day-to-day enduring of you're lesser than and you're untrustworthy and you're only here to steal our jobs and you're disease. I mean, especially with COVID, right? And now there's even more of that kind of discussion about immigrants all everywhere, right? Like we have all this, we have to stop immigration because that's going to fix COVID. Like what? Um all of these things, I think, should be part of the general way that we, first of all, what we identify as immigration injustice so that we are moved to realize this requires not just, you know, someone being nice or something on the street. It requires structural change in attitudes and and legacies of colonialism and legacies of racism are playing out in Costa Rica right here in ways that lead individual Nicaraguans to have great suffering and peril uh, and live very, very challenging lives, you know, of poverty and lack of education and lack of health care, um, only because of these kinds of stereotypes that are rooted like way back. So um, so that's that's part of it. And it, like I said, it broke my heart, but, but I think what, you, I think, the only thing you could say is that colonialism and racist histories have to become part of the project of immigration justice. And, and how do we work with other scholars and other activists who are in those areas, uh, not just immigration scholars, right, but feminist activists. Um, I think, actually, I have an example in the book of, of a woman in, who didn't want to have a baby in a Costa Rican hospital because she was so scared of of how the nurse would react. I mean, I think that 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 chapter more than any maybe and and maybe the next show why those of us in immigration study you know immigration justice in philosophy really we need to start working with people all over the spectrum not just in immigration because we're gonna that's what it's going to take to actually start rectifying immigration justice in in immigration injustice pardon me um i i think it's really about as I was reading it, it's about the time of this chapter that I really started thinking about all the different ways that global oppression could be a helpful analytic to study things. And I couldn't help but think about IMF austerity measures in Costa Rica and the way that the discourse of scarcity and enforced scarcity are so crucial to the sorts of injustices that you outline here. Um, So so I hope that your, I hope that this book inspires uh, more work either out of yourself or others on, on using global oppression as a lens. Yes. The the big question is, you know, when you, when you rethink, go back and think, wow, we were treated pretty well. Right. I mean, when we go to these places Mm -hmm. and, and it's great. I mean, who wants to be treated poorly when they go visit, (laughs) but, but it, it does I, I think part of me really wanted to say something about Costa Rica, not just because of my personal thing, but because of how many people from the U.S. go to Costa Rica and see it as this like tropical paradise. And and actually, um, and I indicate some of it at the end in terms of talking about some of the stuff around the, the sex industry, you know, how much you know, our pleasure 
is and us being treated well in, in that context is really connected more directly than we'd like to think to the injustices uh, that are endured by others, both Costa Ricans and... And, and this chapter talks about... And this chapter talks, the, the sixth chapter about Costa Rica talks about that on a sort of libidinal level. And the next chapter talks about that on a more international and fiscal level, specifically with Colombia accepting so many Venezuelan refugees and immigrants with, you know, terminology here can be discussed. But um, and then, you know, just this week, uh, President Duque announced such a massive change to um to how uh, in some ways sort of a progression and continuation of past policy. Um, so. Let's talk a little bit about um, this chapter is about femicide of Venezuelan women in Colombia. And then maybe if we have a little bit of time, we could also unpack a little bit what's changed in the last week in Colombia. Sure. Um, I'll say that, unfortunately, what hasn't changed is femicide, uh, which actually I'm working on writing a piece on right now. Um, but but so so basically this chapter was another one that I was like, OK, so so by the time I started writing this chapter, I only lived here for four months. I had I had had the job offer for a while, and therefore I had made multiple trips here, and 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 so and was very familiar with circumstances. But I was very torn, to be honest with you, about being an immigrant from the United States, writing a book on immigration justice that was going to skewer my host nation, who um, who is treated who you know who treats me very well, mostly. Um, and I was very torn about that. And I thought, okay, but, but I have to, I can't just be like, well, everything's fine. And, and, and so I just kept thinking and ruminating on this, like, what am I going to write about the Columbia issue? Which issue am I going to write about? It obviously is going to be about Venezuelans. It's, it's about to become the largest, uh, my refugee crisis in, in the, well, I don't like the word crisis anymore. Uh, it's about to become the largest group of, of refugees and displaced people in the world. It's going to surpass Syria within months, probably. Um, and, and it gets very little attention. And I was thinking, so I was thinking about this, right? And I was like getting mad and, you know, to use your words, using my own global oppression analytic and, and, you know, literally just having drinks with people or coffee with people or lunch and, and getting very disturbed by me asking questions about like, well, what kind of international assistance is coming to Colombia? What kind of international assistance is coming to Colombia? And the answer is, you know, practically nothing, practically nothing. And then that just made me mad. And I thought, okay. And originally, frankly, that was going to be the chapter. The chapter was just going to be on the global injustice being perpetrated with Venezuelan migrants as the victims of that and Colombians to some extent of these of these policies, some of which you alluded to, right? Of of how many how much more global support there is for all sorts of reasons uh, for refugees and migrants from the Middle East, and I believe me, I think all that and more should be going to that direction, but practically nothing to Venezuelans, and and it and so that was going on, and then to show sometimes the serendipity between teaching and research. I just happened that week when this was all coming together to be teaching a class on femicide. And, and I taught them on this topic for a few weeks and, and it made, that inspired me to, well, I should see what's happening in Colombia around this issue to make it local for my students. So it's relatable. And, 
And I came across all these numbers on how many Venezuelan women are victims of femicide. And I thought, how come we're not calling that an immigration injustice? And that's, that's what led to the chapter being what it is. So, so that's really the focus of the chapter is, is my proposition that, that um, and I really wanted to, to note, okay, this is, I think, probably where it's the most obviously to not to most people, like this is the feminist, where feminism is really obvious, right? Like, why is it that we are not calling femicide an immigration injustice? Why are we calling it anything but an immigration injustice? Why are, why are people studying immigration injustice not focusing on femicide with, a, with, with the obvious exceptions of some folks focusing on it in the Mexican context in, in, along the border? But even that, it's it tends to t- be more connected to organized crime and and drugs and and drug policy, and and in fact, as I cite in the book, there's one of the most famous scholars of femicide explicitly says, "I don't think we should worry so much about the fact that most of these women are immigrants. Like that's not that's not going to help us understand what's going on here." And I thought, how how can you how could you have said that? <laughs> like this is what this is. So mostly, what I do is I, I trace. What femicide is, academically speaking, like what is this, what is this phenomenon? How is it going on in Colombia against Venezuelan women? And why we should see it as an immigration injustice uh, for various reasons. And, and then through that lens, bringing in uh, what I hope anyways, a strong critique of the international community leading and participating in a whole nother set of global oppressions against both Venezuelan women and Colombians by not doing anything, even as we all know what's happening. I mean, you can read any of these organizations reporting. They have, all of them have reports on femicide in Colombia against Venezuelan women or violence against women in Colombia uh, uh, from Venezuela. And yet not one of them is, you know, ponying up anything uh, to help in that situation. And, Yes, there are groups, you know, there are many groups, but, but they don't have the resources for this sort of thing. So, so I, I have to say, I, I began by really not liking that chapter and it's become one of my favorites of the book because it, it starts, I think it brings a lot of things together. You know, I think it brings a lot of things together in terms of gender and how gender is involved in immigration justice. I think it brings, it, I think it really brings to light the really how we learn so much more when we apply a lens of global oppression to this rather than border analysis or even just, you know, oppression in domestic contexts. And, and at the same time, oh, I think it shows how, how nations oppress other nations and international structures participate um, willingly and unwittingly in, in the oppression of immigrants. And also at the same time, I think it, I'm hoping anyway, I think a lot of people don't know about what happened, what, what's going on in Costa Rica. And I think even fewer really know what's happening in Colombia. So I think that all that kind of gets, gets done in that last chapter where I'm hopefully at, you know, helping, helping shed light on some stuff that I think lots of people would be interested in, in the U S but there's just not a lot of source material about it, but also really, I think it's just an example of how taking an approach, the approach to immigration justice that I'm offering really gives us all, all sorts of new questions and a richer understanding of, of the problems. Well, I certainly think you accomplished that in this book. Um, thank, you. thank you so much for your time today. Um, before we go and before we wrap up, 
Could you talk a little bit about what's next or what are you working on now? Sure. Well, as probably won't surprise you after what I just said, I'm working on a, a many projects involving immigration in the Colombian context. And I'm hoping to develop a book eventually of, of looking at philosophical issues in immigration justice, but just from within the Colombian context, because Colombia has so many, so many, many, many um, things going on, internally displaced population, a huge immigrant population, huge immigrant populations, et cetera, that I think that if we changed our central point from the U.S. and Europe to Colombia, we would actually really learn a lot about classic philosophical questions and generate more philosophical questions. So, so that's my, that's, that's the, one of the main projects right now. And the second actually will seem very unrelated, but, um, but I actually am working on a book with a colleague named Jennifer Thompson at Cal State Northridge on, we are editing an anthology and hopefully doing more on applied Jewish ethics and looking at how we can bring Jewish ethics to more secular contexts to talk about contemporary issues. So of course, my contribution will be on applying a Jewish ethical lens to immigration in the Americas. Um, but we're hoping to, we're bringing scholars together from all sorts of areas to talk about um, an expanded contemporary, uh, you know, diverse understanding of Jewish ethics for a wide, wide audience. So that's also, that's also on my on my list at the moment. That very short list. That very short list, yeah. Um, I'm not going to sleep for a while, but it's okay. Well, thank you so much, and uh, I hope you enjoy the rest of your day. Thank you. What a pleasure it was to talk to you, Ethan. Thank you so much.